Wars Breakfast Metal episode 107. In this episode, I'm going to be giving a kind of brief history of the use of saxophone in metal and heavy music in general. So I've got a load of examples. I'm going to run sort of chronologically through them to chart the kind of development of that instrument's usage in metal. I know, I know it's kind of a... Um, somewhat divisive topic i think some see it as sort of a gimmick that's been used a few times a good effect but it's now overdone personally i mean i've been a huge fan of saxophone and metal since uh Ishan included it in after and i think it has much more of a place um than some give it credit for and hopefully with this episode i can kind of convert some of you around to the idea that actually Maybe it should be seen the same way as we see any kind of orchestral instrument in metal where it's, you know, natural fit. It's like as soon as you accept keyboards, thus like the whole orchestra could be included and that all felt like a natural progression. Um, with saxophone, you know, we're a genre that heavily, in, at least in certain subgenres, leans into jazz. So why not a little saxophone as well? But, you know, there has been times where it's been used to great effect times it has been used for something is just a bit of a fun distraction and going through this like uh, i want to sort of chart the historic development of that places where lots of bands seem to use it in a similar way and other spots where maybe it wasn't so kind of popular or commonly used what's nice about doing something like this chronologically is actually on this particular subject there of saxophones use in metal there is a very obvious star point i imagine when you saw the title of this episode, everyone's mind went to this riff. So yeah, with this episode taking things back further than I ever had before to 1969 with King Crimson's Into the Cause of the Crimson King. While certainly not a metal album, I'm very much of the opinion, you know, metal started in 1970 with Black Sabbath's first album. The track 21st Sk Century Schizoid Man is well and truly um, a metal song. It is so hard, like, post that point, defining it as anything else seems ridiculous. Certainly a, a progressive metal song in that, but those, that heavy guitar, and, like, the, the saxophone plays in, it, it, it is the lead instrument in the song over those kind of, like, heavy riffs and cool drum grooves. It's the thing that sort of immediately grabs everyone's attention like from that kind of more simplistic stuff in the opening couple of riffs to the, the huge solo in the center it is the, the kind of standout point of the of the song and that is a very heavy song i mean i like now yeah this is possibly more accessible but i can only imagine how intense that sounded in 1969 and ian mcdonald's uh playing on it absolutely spectacular but then you know what am i saying um Saying that about any member of King Crimson is obviously ridiculous. They were incredible musicians. Sadly, I discovered uh, Googling this, Ian McDonald died last month. So, RIP to that guy. That was, you know, a legendary performance on the, the first couple of albums. Like, really brilliant musician. What's interesting with this is that sort of King Crimson sort of somewhat set out a template there with that track, I think, to... There could have been a bit of a springboard for a genre. I could see a lot more coming out in that vein. And this is where my knowledge of, like, 70s hard rock and metal gets a bit patchy. But in, in my notes, I don't have another sax-driven, kind of aggressive song like that. 
for quite some time. The the next example I had down as a as in metal is from 1978 with Black Sabbath's Never Say Die and the track Breakout, where they sort of use an arrangement, I think it's a couple of different sax players or various brass instruments playing over, like, you know, your kind of more typical heavy Black Sabbath riffs, but adding this, like, huge bombastic lead section. And it's, again, I would classify it as metal by virtue of what the guitars are doing, but it's something that I know it almost harks back to a different era than King Crimson. It's far more kind of melodic and accessible, whereas like the the sax playing in um, 21st century Schizoid Man is very heavy and aggressive. I mean, actually, more would fit in with what happens and some of the later points on that particular King Crimson album. So this is where you, those of you who do know your history a lot better, I'd love you to fill me in some great examples of saxophone that happened throughout the 70s. Because in terms of getting to heavy music, we're about to jump quite a few years here. Um, The next example I've got, and this is a really good one, actually, is the band Siege with their album Drop Dead. This is the kind of band that would normally be way off my radar. So this uh, album, or I think possibly even like sort of demo collection, came out around uh, 1984 um, from Weymouth, Massachusetts. Like It's kind of hardcore punk, but almost sounds like proto-grind or power violence, um, particularly because of um, vocalist uh, uh, Kevin Mahoney has this incredible, like, gnarly, shrieking scream and occasionally does these, like, kind of almost guttural growls before any of that stuff had really been codified, you know, this is 1984. The most of the album is this sort of hyper-aggressive, short, like, minute-to-two-minute blasts of music but in the middle of the album, there's a seven-minute-long track called Grim Reaper in which things like slow down. There's more of this bass-led, like, low, ominous groove. And then we just get this shredding saxophone over the top. Like, for most of the seven minutes, there's a section in the centre. We get more of a kind of um, screams and, uh, like, shredding lead guitar. But then it's back to this really like fucked up sounding saxophone and this this is where i think saxophones really got kind of an edge on a lot of other instruments of it just sounds kind of simultaneously kind of musical but also often quite dissonant in places it it goes for a lot of things in this you can tell it's a guy who's very good at their instruments somewhat shredding over the music and yeah it just creates an incredible atmosphere that's such a kind of such a contrast from everything that went before it all and everything that kind of follows in the album yeah really cool center point to a very short incredibly aggressive release and this yeah certainly speaks to my ignorance of this like you know essentially pre almost thrash metal scene of the the extremity some of these bands were pushing in the hardcore punk scene and if you are really into that kind of early napalm death sound i think they definitely cite like siege as an influence i can see um i can certainly see the clear line from this band to the later grind and power violence although less so this track grim reaper i think it'd be a while before saxophone rears its head in grind again
unsurprisingly, we don't get a lot of obvious examples of saxophone over the next few years. The late 80s, famously not a time where metal was really experimenting with a lot of external influences, far more focusing on upping the speed and aggression. Do have one good example from 1988, though. The band Warfare from the UK on their um, fourth album, A Conflict of Hatred, actually included a guest sax player on two songs. Band I wasn't particularly familiar with ahead of time. I, I definitely had seen the cover of Mayhem Fucking Mayhem, their 1986 album before, which I think is a kind of cult status. But they're um, kind of that speed metal, like new wave of British heavy metal influence thrash. So it's like some of the kind of groove and aesthetic of that those genres there, but taking on like the edge of like their vocalist particularly is a very destruction-esque um voice uh and they're they're a power trio uh all the stuff's performed by bass player drummer slash vocalist and guitarist which uh, adds an interesting dynamic to their stuff although it keeps it very simplistic and very raw sounding which makes it all the more bizarre halfway through the album we get dancing in the flames of insanity this six minute on track that starts off with this like very um aggressive raw punky thrash three minutes in just over these kind of heavy fresh riffs amazing sax solo that then kind of transitions into a really flashy bit of guitar work and then back into more of this kind of like melodically delivered sax complete like left turn for an album that, that felt yeah extremely kind of roaring in your face to suddenly have this moment of um for one of a better term kind of beauty in the middle of it it's a really kind of i don't know amazing contrast so it definitely sort of captured my attention in a style that you know that kind of proto fresh sound isn't isn't my favorite kind of thing usually but yeah i, I thought it was very impressively executed and later in the album the sax player reappears for order of the dragons where it does another sort of guest solo in an equally kind of chaotic riff i'm not sure this is particularly true for their sort of earlier three albums but they seem to have some real pretensions of of oddness on this album actually there's um guests like female vocals later in the album a couple of sections where they use like really epic sounding synths and even like um some very pretentious spoken word parts uh something about british thrash band sabbath always comes to mind in terms of making the lyrics way more kind of highbrow and uh kind of literally influenced than you you'd expect from this genre normally so yeah, there's some really cool stuff on A Conflict of Hatred. I definitely would advise it. Yeah, for an album from like 88, it's well worth revisiting for a band doing something a bit different.
So this sort of brings us into the 90s, and the next group of bands are utterly critical for the development of instruments like sax in progressive, extreme music, but I've got to confess I've never actually particularly liked any of these. So two projects I definitely can't pass up mentioning are both John Zorn-based ones. We have his band Naked City, which formed in 1990, I think put out like a series of albums very rapidly. Yes, six albums between 1990 and 1993 that range through a lot of styles. I mean, the one I tried to get into with that lot, uh, Grand Ganino, um, that's definitely how you pronounce that, um, is bizarre. It's like half an hour of kind of ambient stuff and then like half an hour of just the most intense chaotic noise ever. A lot of that like extremely ever-changing genre shifting like the band are definitely uh very out there in the avant-garde camp their wikipedia page says their music incorporates elements of jazz surf progressive rock classical heavy metal grindcore country punk rock and other genres so basically just anything and it's i i just find with that kind of music i i struggle to find a hook in it it's very impressive like it incredibly kind of um musically like amazing that they compose stuff like this and compose it so quickly um also i believe like a lot of these albums much like his other band painkiller which um again avant-garde jazz and grindcore featuring mick harris of napalm death fame on uh on drums doing something not entirely dissimilar vein all of these albums came out at least the early ones on Eric records so very much tied to the burgeoning like death and grind scenes and with musical overlap and certainly playing on a level of extremity with those as i say i, I find these these albums kind of too much for me very interesting as well i, I think it might have been painkiller that's responsible for this but um they use their like both painkiller and naked city use a lot of like true gore artwork on their album covers i think they were the ones that got raided from eric's office back in the early 90s which uh sort of under some draconian law where you weren't allowed to share that but yeah like uh so clearly a huge instrument that it like influence on bringing saxophone into the extreme metal scene obviously like there's some big names kind of involved this john zorn himself who already had a hell of a career ahead of this point um also naked city as a live member have mike Patton as a guest vocalist apparently 91 to 2003 had been involved which brings us neatly to the other project that majorly brings uh saxophone in and unsurprisingly has exactly the same issue for me Mr. Bungle. And Mr. Bungle have their first album in 1991, their self-titled, and then 95, Disco Volante, um, sort of continues up getting even more weird and wonderful. These are albums that I would almost class in the realm of metal just because they are so avant-garde and extreme. I don't think a lot of, um, a lot of people outside those genres really have a lot of time for them, and Mr. Bungle, as you can hear from their sort of re-recordings of their early stuff, started out in a quite a fratchy vein, but then I believe expand the lineup to include both a tenor sax player and a secondary alto or baritone sax, depending on the song player, which is interesting. I think certainly the first example I think we've seen of a baritone sax, so mainly I think a lot of this stuff tends to be an alto. Um, and there's interesting stuff in here. I just find it that kind of music 
more so than Naked City, I have really tried to like Mr. Bungle, particularly that first album, and I just can't get past the chaos. I've never found something to truly latch onto in it. It's very, very impressive and sort of weird and wonderful um, in, in its own way, but it's, yeah... I find it like an exhausting listen, and the same is true of their later material. But it certainly started pushing the the edge of the, the extremity that could be made with that instrument. Like John Zorn's a kind of classic for it, but using saxophone is this really bizarre, like going through all the notes under the sun in a way that moves back and forth between like sort of catchy and discordant rapidly, and doing the just bizarre squealing noises with the saxophone taking it to the place of it being a really kind of aggressive and upsetting instrument where it's kind of famed like a lot of its use through the 80s was for the most melodic thing in the world the you know the the kind of the most sweet saccharine sound you can get i love that it's you know you've got that dichotomy of an instrument that isn't for the most part i think we're not talking about something that's been affected like a guitar where you know it can sound like anything because it's going through pedals like a sax by itself can be this huge distance of sounds so yeah uh hugely important but uh not something i understand i'm afraid something of the same period i could get more on board with um Certainly not quite metal, but, you know, very much adjacent to it. Soundguard on their album Bad Motorfinger from 1991 included sax on two tracks, Room A, Thousand Years Wide, and New Damage. Both feature kind of saxophone over, particularly with Room A, Thousand Years Wide. Um, like, over quite heavy riffing. It, it's, you know, that classic kind of Soundgarden chugs going on there and Chris Cornell this is a track where he's pushing his vocals to kind of a harder end getting to that point where he's almost screaming because he's put so much vocal kind of fry on his voice in places the song is rings out on kind of this heavy riff that sort of tails off into sort of chaos and that's really brought to a fore by this this guest saxophone that appears over the top of it using maybe an edge of that sort of style that John Zorn was bringing to Naked City to make utter chaos to just have a song come to a kind of really messy weird crescendo. In the same vein a few years later a saxophone also appears on Mad Seasons uh, one and only album above on the track uh, Long Gone Day uh, which uh, R.I.P. Mark Lanigan amazing sort of vocal performance on this this is a much more sedate affair, though, opposed to, like, Soundgarden's, like, sort of heavy guitar. This is this is a more kind of melodic moment of the album. And the sax is used to great effect. It's a very, very different sound to um, to what we, we have in those other tracks. It's very kind of melodic and mournful and very much fits with the sort of the emotion of the, the vocals in this section. Around the same point in time, we also see Dream Theater include a saxophone on the track and Another Day uh, from Images and Words, which to my mind is definitely the worst track on the album, and actually the use of saxophone on it. While like a very pretty kind of bit of solo sax, it almost makes an otherwise extremely cheesy song just too cheesy to get through on otherwise like probably the best Dream Theater album. So... Maybe not the best example. Another one I had in my notes in this era is the organisation with their self-titled album 
on the the song Lift. This is 1993. They're a kind of rubbish funk metal band uh, made up of Death Angel members. Have an amazing saxophone solo on this song. It's uh, kind of one of those similar ones to, I, I think, again, like uh, sort of the Soundgarden thing where it's like a groovy kind of heavy riff and then brings in sax for like great effect in the middle and just a really noticeably different thing. But what I've been trying to do here is sort of stepping around the influence that will probably bring us into saxophone in extreme metal. And now I'm at to the point, by 1992, April 92 to be precise, we finally get really an amazing example of saxophone incorporated into death metal. And it must be no surprise to hear that innovation and death metal came in the form of Dan Swano with his possibly undersung, but I think they're now getting their praise, Project Pandemonium. Uh, Pandemonium, active between 1990-96, put out an EP and three albums. Three albums are all absolutely fantastic, and their 1992 album, Dawn of Dreams, literally opens with a weird bit of saxophone uh, played by Dag Swano, uh, Dan's older brother, who was also lead guitarist for the band in this project, I think Dan Swano is doing uh, bass and keyboards, and then they've got a separate vocalist, rhythm guitarist and drummer, uh, all of which have gone on to do quite a lot of other interesting stuff in in metal. Vocalist who went by Derelict in the, under this band, goes on to play in Scar, Symmetry and Facebreaker. Uh, Dan Swano obviously goes on to many things. He, he goes by Day Dai Shari in this band. Uh, Drummer Winter also played with um, Veggie Sanity. Guitarist Morning uh, also played with Facebreaker and yeah, a few other great kind of more to the point death metal acts. But Panthamonium were um, in a very strange space. They they were kind of completely anonymous as a band, like kept their identity hidden. Um, all their lyrics are in an indecipherable sort of made-up language. No idea if it's like a complete joke or if there was some actual logic to it, but it means their arms have names like Cahoos and Cahoos and Confusion. Uh, their arms, I think, sort of come to a peak of experimental weirdness with Cahoos, the 1993 one, where the second half of it... Th this band, if you think of a stupid, weird idea to include in metal... Odds are, Pandemonium had a go at it. The The second half of this album, they, like, fake a song being performed live in front of an audience. I'm pretty sure it's the studio recording that they've dubbed an audience onto and then made later tracks sound like fake demos for the album. It's like, like it's sort of giving the end half of the album this, like, fake bonus track appeal. The music itself is this incredibly sort of chaotic lurching between heavy death metal with these incredibly guttural, very brutal, indecipherable vocals into moments of, like, really beautiful stuff with saxophone and keyboard, some moments of incredible grooves, others, like, getting, like, very melodic briefly, and then moving into just layering things with strange sound effects. I think this will probably be at the point where Dan had his own studio. I think it must be, because I don't believe Dan Swanner could have created something like this on another studio's time this really does smack of people having time to infinitely uh edit their own albums and put every weird and wonderful idea under the sun onto there i think um 
most people kind of accept this band sort of peak with the the opening of Cahoots and Confusion, the Battle of Gahib, um Really, if you you've never listened to Pandemonium before, but like Edge of Sanity and that kind of stuff, that's probably the album to start on. Uh, that opening track's the real high point. But for me, like, I think possibly the best use of sax is uh, in the middle of track three of Cahoo's uh, Yag and Them, where out of a previously very heavy riff, the sax just leaves this really, like, jaunty, odd, groovy section. Like, it, it's it's hard to explain, but it's it just makes for such, like, a contrast and sort of weird left turn on an album that's already started out incredibly confusing. Um, the only thing I will say with this one is skip the opening track. That two-minute intro just is not of any use to anyone. But yeah, a, a band who was certainly pushing the boundaries, and this is only 1993, so he's, you know, coming towards the uh, the tale of death metal, but hardly hardly past the oversaturation point. And it's just it's awesome to have like an act like this who still haven't really been recreated or had that influence clearly show up again they were just doing something completely unique at the time Now, I was really hoping to find the black metal equivalent of uh, Pandemonium. Didn't quite get that, but we do have um, Greece's Necromantia, who on their second album, Scarlet Evil Witching Black from 1995, they include a saxophone in one of the songs. So Necromantia have always been a weirdo in the black metal scene, like including a lot of odd movements in their songs. The, the track on this one that... Uh, features the saxophone the arcane light of hecate is far like it's it's kind of like this atmospheric sort of keyboard driven piece where 
the the sax playing isn't entirely dissimilar for what's maybe being played in say like another day by dream theater but the chords underneath it are so sinister it has this very dark very apocalyptic vibe necromancy's interesting sort of running theme in their albums is having two bass players so uh uh, Magnus Diabolov plays bass and is also the vocalist. But we also have Baron Blood, who is credited with eight-string bass on the albums, giving them a very weird sort of rich tone. Like so, an eight-string bass, unlike a seven, like an eight-string guitar, it's not eight strings laid out. It's, it's more like a twelve-string guitar where there's like a a higher and lower like octave pair, I believe, that make a very strange sound strikes me they must be very difficult to play in eight-string bass. That's that's a lot to cover your fingers. But yeah, it makes for a very weird, rich sound in the, the more guitar-driven passages. But on top of that, there's a huge amount of sort of keyboard usage in the album, and I feel the saxophone is a kind of interesting kind of a addition on top of that, like another sort of melodic keyboard-type layer. Necromancy would get to really weird places with some of the later albums. The, the one that's I don't know that the experiment quite works, but it's it's a fascinating album anyway. It's the sound of Lucifer Storming Heaven from 2007, where they forgo guitar completely, and it's just two bass, keyboards, drums, and vocals. And yeah, a very strange tone for an album, but you know, just really interesting idea. And, you know, the more sign that there was a lot of the Greek scene sort of really pushing the bounds of stuff. And it, it's something, spending this year going back to... Uh, check out all the stuff I'd sort of missed like Necromantia, those first two albums uh, Scarlet which in Black which we were talking about and the previous one Crossing the Fiery Path, two I've really got into recently and it's interesting to see the extent they were challenging ideas with stuff like this. Talking of pushing the boundaries there is a particularly fantastic use of saxophone on Frederick Fordendal's special defects so Frederick is the guitarist and I, I think main composer behind Meshuggah and this album came out in 97 right between um, Destroy, Erase, Improve and Chaos Sphere so it's just before Meshuggah had really kind of locked into that sound they'd be kind of set with going forward um, and this is Frederick playing the kind of weirdest parts of his imagination the version of it I've got is is one song, but on Metal Archives I've seen it split up into 29 separate tracks. But it more or less plays as one piece, and you know, those 29 tracks are like moments that are like 16 seconds long, and others that are closer to three minutes. And it is the, like, all the most chaotic, frenetic, weirdo moments of Meshuggah um, just boiled down into these, like, tiny explosions. Like, um... The the kind of EPI is not ridiculously far removed from this, but I mean this is just so much earlier than times, you know, over ten years earlier. Um and it's truly wild avant-garde music, you know, combining a lot of elements of jazz on top of that, you know, what we now know as the traditional sugar kind of very rhythmic, polyrhythmic chugging and odd timings of of drums versus guitar. There's a huge amount of sort of guest like um, guest musicians, I, I believe, involved. But Frederick does like the majority of stuff playing bass, guitar, synthesizers, and adding his own very twisted, weirdo screams in there. But at, the use of saxophone in this is very interesting. Around half an hour into it, um, there is a three-minute-long section 
where it is a kind of more gentle ambient piano passage with a little bit of guitar and this amazingly melodic sax solo that kind of progresses and gets weirder and weirder but it's, it almost feels like a moment of breathing space in this otherwise very very suffocating album and what I love about the use of saxophone is given that bit more time is it goes through these kind of melodic movements towards the end it gets into this kind of wild odd noises that totally sound like something if you you were doing this guitar it would be like messing with the signals like to get these high-pitched notes that kind of fly away in an odd odd manner but uh Jonas Nuxon uh, who's credited with playing sax on this he's just you know just producing these weird notes from his instrument and showing in this essential three minute space he has for a solo the the kind of variety and like yeah just the amount of different sounds you can get out of an instrument and it, it is just this amazing bit of sort of beautiful breathing room in a very over the top extremely progressive album it's interesting i've got to admit like being so into, say, this and Pandemonium, but struggling so much with Mr. Bungle. But for some reason, for me, these give me a lot more to latch onto. And I don't know, I mean, possibly it's just because they are rooted in metal. I, I sort of very much enjoy them. But yeah, if you're you're someone who struggles with Mr. Bungle and that kind of stuff as well, maybe these won't be the moments to sell you. But um, yeah, they certainly, certainly start showing an interesting use of sax. Although maybe outside of necromantic we still haven't quite got to that point where we're hearing sax as anything other than like something to include because it's weird or something to include because we're at a moment of extreme melodicism where we're almost going to sidestep into another genre I'd say around this stage, the references start coming sort of uh, thick and fast. The band Archangel um, use it on a couple of tracks on their album 
Tears and Angels Fall, which is not really my thing, kind of very power metal. The um, Black Star on their own Barbed Wire Soul on the song Rock and Roll uh, Circus have an appearance of saxophone, but it doesn't really save Black Star from being the really sad post-carcass project. Porcupine Tree on Stupid Dream use it in the song Don't Hate Me. It's an absolutely killer bit of sax solo, but Porcupine Tree in 1999 were very much a prog rock band, and their kind of flirtations with metal with like Fear of the Blank Planet are kind of many years away at this stage. Though it's still a very, very good use of it. Um, I particularly enjoy the use of it in the album Pilgrimage from 2001 in a couple of tracks, uh, Longing and Waves particularly. So the... I think that's how you say it, it's V-U-V-R, um, or this cool, unsurprisingly Czech Republic band who play the kind of mix of like cynic, atheist-inspired tech death, but with these massive passages in the later half of the album of very sort of ambient, jazzy prog, which features a lot of guest sax playing, and is again kind of more to what I was talking of, of an album sort of wandering out of the bounds of the genre by quite a way to include sax rather than sax being layered on top of any of their kind of progressive death metal tendencies. Certainly a very interesting recent. I highly recommend people check it out. It's a, it's a favourite of mine from that era, but it's, yeah, maybe not quite what we're, we're after for today. A band we couldn't avoid mentioning in this sort of coverage of sax in metal is... Toby Driver's K.O. Dot. Their debut album, Criers of the Eye, from 2003, has some excellent use of saxophone over some very heavy, kind of sludgy doom sections of this album. Uh, the album, if you're not familiar with K.O. Dot, they are a very out-there project, kind of involving elements of, like, sludge metal, like, some more kind of almost more extreme sort of death or black metal leanings, but then huge sections of ambient and experimental music. Lots of, like, weird and wonderful ideas included there. Over the the hour runtime of this thing, the it moves through so many interesting ideas. So the opening marathon has a lot of textures, I think, I'm probably going to be wrong about some of this, because there's there's people, like, Toby Driver himself is um, credited with cello, clarinet, and tuba, um, and then we have a um, guy credited with alto sax, clarinet, flute, so and a trumpet player as well. I've been known to confuse trumpet and saxophone a fair few times. Um, but they are all sort of laid in there. So these textures over this very slow, heavy building intro to the album. But as the album moves through, we get so many um, sort of oddball kind of textures, stuff where things move into like spoken word over like ambient piano uh stuff where things speed up a bit and you get some more kind of aggressive screaming there's some like flashy guitar solos albeit with like toby driver's very odd guitaring sensibility the the album's got a huge lineup as well i think there's about 10 musicians involved um all sorts of things going on like uh, yeah there's guest trumpet trombone french horn multiple additional guitarists um We've got four vocalists credited on the album, so loads of kind of weird and wonderful, like, sort of vocal textures. And actually, the album closes, the the song The Antique, the last five minutes of it, sound like this very old-timey kind of music where the the saxophone plays a, a far more traditional role as opposed to kind of 
the kind of nastiness it's used for early in the album. Incredibly progressive experimental stuff. And I think his early as 2003, you can see why this guy and his, his kind of projects, um, you know, previously from Model in the Well, um, are held up as kind of such kind of important staples of the progressive avant-garde scene they, there's you see a lot of influence taken from this i think ko dot definitely and model in the well as well seem like something that had a huge influence on that like norwegian prog scene i covered a while ago that sort of emerged late 90s early 2000s these seem to run along with that in quite a quite a linked way <laughs> detail because I won't pretend to be an expert on Toby Driver that is a whole wormhole that's pretty worth me delving into at some point but yeah far more research is needed. Some of the bands I kind of came across in the research this there is The Mass uh, another US band uh, from Oakland California who Metal Archives has down as crossover slash fresh avant-garde metal who have a sax player who is also the vocalist of their band is kind of a constant part of their their four-piece lineup. Um, I listened to their debut album, City of Dis, and it it starts really well with this very frenetic sort of back and forth between sort of um, wild saxophone playing and heavy guitar and bass stuff, um, moments of like kind of aggressive screaming. And for the first couple of tracks, it had me quite kind of enthralled, but I much like my issue with stuff like the, the, the kind of Mike Patternil. It, it lost me after a while. It didn't something about the album just didn't have me constantly coming back to it. One I did find a bit more engaging in that kind of general vein was Panzer Ballet, who are a Munich quintet uh, led by guitarist Jan Zerfield, who um, I kind of wanted to hate because he wears a really silly hat on stage. But listening to their debut album from 2005, Panzer Ballet, 
it's an incredibly sort of catchy thing. I'd say, I think they describe themselves as jazz metal, and I think that's a, a fair description. Musically, it feels like an ever so slightly heavier version of what um, Thank You Scientists do. If you're familiar with that band, it's like that, but instrumental, so without the, the kind of high-pitched vocals. And there's some amazing like sax work on it, some amazing guitar stuff, lots of these kind of very all-over-the-place um, riffs, but it does just have that thing of very lead-driven instrumental music of, at a point, enjoyable as it is, somewhat washes over you. I, I I enjoyed my time with this this album, but I can't see it being one sort of I put on a lot. Incredibly impressive, though. Like, like some of the guitar work is, is properly um, mind-blowing, and, and it is a cool project for having the sax include so much and dueling with the guitar while still having that core of quite heavy, rocking guitar, bass and drums kind of locking it down and keeping it in the metal genre. Now I'm on this sort of list I created that I wish I'd had a bit more time to spend with was Chili's Corprofago with their third album, Unorthodox Creative Criteria from 2005, which feels like another one in that similar vein to Ver, where it's like some very progressive technical stuff, maybe loosely in the realm of um, thrash metal, but there's an instrumental track in the middle of this where it's like a seven-minute sort of detour, which has a kind of melodic saxophone solo in it. Um, but he, as I say, similar vein to Ver, where the sax is used for um, a bit of a departure from the otherwise uh, like sound of the album. Another album I'd wish I'd spend a bit more time on, but really came to love on first listen, is the debut album from Minsk, uh, out of a centre which is neither dead nor alive. Minsk are another US band from Illinois this time, and they play a kind of very heavy sludge post-metal kind of thing. I think they're a band wearing their Neurosolis influence strongly on their sleeve. Like Their vocalist very much sounds like he's doing a Scott Kelly voice throughout this. But, you know, it's an interesting long-form sludge album, well over an hour in length for lots of songs that sort of gradually build to a heavy crescendo. And the, the guest sax um, appearance is worth mentioning because it's the first appearance of... Bruce Lamont in this um, this episode, who will be a name that comes up a lot more going forward, and he's used to close out the album on the the ten minute closer, Wisp of Toe, which um, is far more kind of atmospheric and sparse than the other tracks. And his sax is used as this subtle kind of mournful, faraway sound in this um, to sort of just add, I, I guess, a touch of melodicism over what has been a very sort of bludgeoning album up to that stage. So that year we get the first appearance of Japanese avant-garde metalers Psy with their, um, I think, sixth album, Gallows Gallery. This point, Psy have already gone well off onto their journeys, sort of away from traditional black metal into the avant-garde. Gallows Gallery, a particularly weird album for them because it's almost entirely clean vocals. I'd still say very much a metal album, but... Um, yeah, Mirai throughout is is singing in, in a clean voice. There's a lot more kind of um, traditional rock structures on this album. It's the one after Imaginary Song Escapes where they kind of very much departed from their original sound. And I think they have a couple albums following this where it takes them a while to find what they're going to do again. They, they sort of go out into the wilderness a bit with these. And because that's the case, Bruce Lamont once again turns up... Um, to play free guest solos along with a load of other cool um, people, uh, 
Killjoy um, appears for extra voices. We have Gus G among um, among others. Oh, Gunface as well from um, oh, why am I blanking his band name? The Record turns up to to play play as well. Like so, there's a load of like cool bits of lead guitar thrown in here. But yeah, as I say, Bruce Lamont appears three times to add some very melodic sax, very different from the sort of mournful stuff of his um, of the previous album. He's as I say, his name will come up a lot and it will show off quite a range, I think. Staying in the realm of avant-garde black metal, Solifald have been regular collaborators with uh, Kajal Selvik, who has played sax on four of their um, eight albums. Um, particularly of note, tracks like um, uh, what's it called? Sea uh, I Call from um, from their album Red for Fire and Icelandic Odyssey Part One, where we get sax in the middle of absolute kitchen sink music. Uh, this song, this like this particular track actually just has basically everything in it. It's violin, low kind of guttural goth rock vocals, acoustic guitar, um, screeching black metal, you name it. Like yeah, classical influence, jazz influence, they throw it all in there. And and this is this is a running theme with with Solifal. They're a band who started off in the realm of like relatively um progressive black metal with their their debut from 1997 the linear scaffold and continued to get more and more oddball as they sort of went on like to the point of albums like noran uh, levisken uh, from 2010 completely out there that's probably got my favorite use of saxophone on one of their albums in the uh, track vetis vidi i verdi which is another Every instrument's going on here. There's a there's a cool kind of like sax breakdown where things take a very weird turn away from metal. But also one of the singers plays a kazoo on it and what's one of the weirdest guest vocal performances going. I've talked about this one a while ago on some other episodes, but yeah, Northern Lisiskant's um definitely the the Solifal album I'd say go check out if you wanna hear them getting weird and trying strange ideas in an album but yeah some amazing examples of uh of use of saxophone in there 
The band Callisto used the saxophone to amazing effects in their album Noir. So Callisto are a Finnish band, uh, had a couple of albums I think, up to this point, this is 2006. Um, and just on one track, Wormwood, it's a really heavy, like atmospheric, sludgy, post-hardcore, like I'm just reading out Metal Archive's descriptors. Uh, yeah, just really heavy, kind of extreme, slow guitar with very harsh in your face kind of hardcore vocals and then this sort of sax comes in over that and then is led into a kind of more kind of open atmospheric section so it actually the sax is used for the the transition it's a really interesting use of it again i'd love to play more clips but i've got to be careful because i don't want the out the episode to be like six hours long so I'm, I'm skipping a few bands but if any of this takes your fancy i definitely advise going out and checking this wormwood track out it's very cool but again not one i know too much about outside of um yeah outside of quickly checking out now saxophone and metal isn't always a f uh, force for good um same type point in time about a month later trapalium um on their album alchemic alchemic clockwork of disorder uh, have the song Sick Boogie Murder, which is a use of amazing sax over a strange new metal-esque um, nonsense with even a scat section done by a guy dressed as like a 1920s voodoo priest. It's fucking new metal, you know. <laughs> um, nothing to be particularly surprised at here, but... <laughs> Definitely sax masking for everything else in the song being absolutely horrible. Now, that is not the case on uh, Cephalic Carnage's Xenosapien with Global Overhaul Device. Cephalic Carnage, kind of, always a band that felt like a bit ahead of the curve, a bit, like, outside of an era where they could have got much bigger. I mean, they certainly had attention at the time. Albums like uh, Xenosapien and Anomalies and did go down very well with their, like, very complex technical sort of death metal meets maybe a bit of grind. Their Xenosapien definitely feels more strictly in the tech death camp, but they always always had like a nasty edge to it and they a real sense of extremity. Um uh, unsurprisingly this this brief section of guest saxophone is once again an appearance from Bruce Lamont who also adds like a little bit of clean vocals to this track and uh, I think it's really tastefully kind of woven into the the heavier sound of it it doesn't it doesn't feel to me like a lurching shift but um actually quite a kind of natural sort of detour from everything else going on and once again just showing that yes the Violet Carnage were ridiculously ahead of the curve combining these sounds Thank you. 
Now, I realise I'm approaching the hour mark, so I don't want to overdo it and this stuff. I'll run for the next couple to bring us on to the next real interesting era. Uh, Tomira, the band that probably well known these days of being the precursor to Haken, had a very cool guest um, sax part on their best album, Delusions, on the track Asylum. Very much fits that Haken-esque style, which... Uh, they were somewhat developing at that time. Nakmistium on the album Assassins. In Seasick Part 2, Bruce Lamont appears for a, a very interesting section. But that whole Seasick passage of um, Assassins is a real departure from the kind of rocky black metal of the earlier album. This, again, is something that sits more in a jazzy realm. Uh, so some interesting ones we have bird flesh in in the sickness of the sea which is just some nasty horrible grindcore and then the sax is just like thrown in as this in your face shredding solo but as close as we got to like siege at the beginning i guess of a reappearance of saxophone and grindcore in a very different vein fl duaf briefly use um sax on the track uh breed from through the eyes of my dog FL Giraffe, sort of well-placed to use sax, but they were a band who always favoured sort of trumpet. It plays a huge part in the, the Painter's Palette album. Um, but even thinking about it, I'm thinking, is that a sax? I'm pretty sure it's the trumpet on that album. But yeah, they they were a band that sort of messed around with that. And the guy who played in that is also in the band Dot Psychothagist Dot, um, who got, like, I think he... I think he primarily plays guitar on this project, but very experimental avant-garde project, unsurprisingly, from uh, people involved in FL Duath. Now, there is a month where saxophone and metal suddenly becomes the thing. It all happens in January 2010. So as you might notice, going through this, I mean, sporadic groups are like three years with a couple of interesting editions of them. In January 2010, three albums came out that I think one in particular, but two that very much kind of play into it, put saxophone and metal on the map, and it suddenly became an idea that everything we're going to talk about it afterwards, I can't help but think may have taken some influence in these albums. Most famous of which is Ishan's After. So if you listen to that series I did a couple of years back doing my, my favourite albums of each year of the decade, 2010 album, 2010 album, 2010 episode was highly focused on Ishan's After and Shining's Black Jazz. Both appear, Jürgen Munkerby, uh, incredible sax player, teamed up with Ishan for After, and like this was, I was big into Emperor um, when this album came out, so obviously jumped this album straight along, I'd really enjoyed his previous release, Angel, and was amazed to hear sax heavily layered through this album and in real great kind of variation on the track grave inverted it's used as this very aggressive like shredding almost discordant instrument like even like almost playing around with notes that sound like they were played wrong in these kind of ridiculous over-the-top sections um to the the closer on the shore where Jürgen plays these incredibly melodic lines that are used to slowly build up this 10 minute song and he only sort of steps back at the bit where the the song gets incredibly heavy in the center of the album it's uh it's an amazing performance as well i believe Ishan was sort of saying in interviews he really liked saxophone as an instrument and wanted to include it 
but he went for that method of essentially having written and recorded most of the music and just giving Jürgen these sections and capturing him in studio, just improvising ideas over the top of it, which shows the versatility of that musician because it, like what he played for, particularly on the shore, is it's just absolutely beautiful. Like it's incredibly memorable melodic piece that I, you know, I, I've listened to multiple hundreds of times. Like it, absolutely insane stuff. And at the same time, Jürgen also was taking this turn towards extremity um, with his project Shining, not to be confused with this black metal band. They'd gone through being a kind of essentially jazz quartet on their first album, doing some what felt relatively traditional stuff. I think a couple of guys kind of straight out of music school put out a few more where they, they started evolving, doing weirder and weirder things particularly coming to head with their album Grindstone, where they started including heavier influences, a lot of um, keyboards and very, very strange ideas. Like, Grindstone is an incredibly complex, audible album that I, I think is very deep and interesting, but it's, it's by no means a metal record. Then Black Jazz comes out, and the band has fully morphed into a metal band with Jürgen primarily doing guitar and vocals for it, um, you know, having a lineup of five of them, the two guitarists, bass, drums, and keyboards, playing this very heavy, complex, weird music where sax makes the odd appearance. We, like, it, but it's particularly thrown in for, like, really aggressive in-your-face solos, like, particularly in tracks like Fisheye. Um, and then in the, the closer... Shining's rendition of um, 21st Century Schizo Man with Grudler of Enslaved uh, doing the vocals. And they, they, you know, take this incredible avant-garde progressive track that I was talking about right at the start of the episode and make it more complex and more hellish and more terrifying and just turn everything up to 11 and, you know, showing the, the true potential of that as an extreme metal song. Absolutely incredible stuff. <laughs> from this month was size scenes from hell so at this point um rather than 
you know, being in that realm of certainly playing a lot more melodically, Sai's gone back to the heavy sound. But they sort of codified something new. And at this point, uh, Mariah's wife, Dr. McCannibal, has joined the band on uh, lower screen vocals and saxophone and produces some amazing kind of aggressive heavy sax. She's not the most technical sax player in the world. She's certainly not like the Bruce Lamont, like ultra shred kind of level. But she used it to great effect in quite a few tracks in this album, particularly the second half of Musica in the Tempora Belly. I won't go into too much more detail on Sai's use of saxophone in avant-garde black metal. Did a whole series on Sai relatively recently, so don't want to overlay that point. But I think the appearance of a cool woman shredding saxophone on stage with Sai back in 2010... There's no way that didn't have an influence on bands to come. So I think a lot of what we see following these three albums is going to be taking influence from one of them. At least for me as like a casual listener, this was the point in time where saxophone had been put on the map in the metal genre. And it just kept appearing in albums I was buying after this point. So very soon after this in November of the same year meets of Asphodel put out the murder of Jesus the Jew which features saxophone in its its intro track although meets Asphodel are bad heavily involved with Psy like I think Mariah appears on this album and Metatron for me has appeared on many um many Psy albums both before and after this I think he's actually on one of the tracks with saxophone on the previous album um Aborum put out Psycho Grotesque, which features saxophone on a couple of his tracks. Although Aborum are one of those very divisive bands who started out very traditionally black metal and moved into more and more industrial territory, somewhat softening their sounds. And I think Psycho Grotesque is a, an album people aren't so fond of. Although I, I kind of, I really enjoy these two tracks. Um, the album as a whole was a little sort of repetitive in terms of sound, but these, they managed to kind of break out the trappings of that kind of industrial metal by introducing, you know, a sound that's kind of unfiltered as a as a saxophone, you know, an instrument with, as I say, no, no effects added to it. Um, Eanon uh, are a band from Greece, like another Greek one. I, I was quite into their second album, but they actually their first album is all the way back in June... 2011 um the, the name spelled a-e-n-a-o-n sorry if that's obviously something yeah so the the album's called uh Sindres Etsang and it's a kind of really cool mixture of this kind of like blistering aggressive modern black metal kind of a technical band with some really flashy solos but then they they move into sort of weirdness where they'll like include saxophone or keyboards or clean vocals in certain sections like throw in other influences there's some really really cool stuff going on throughout it and actually they're the band that through a guest vocalist introduced me to universe 217 who I became a huge fan of after this i feel like they're a band i'd put in a similar camp to something like transcending bizarre the pre-hail spirit noir project who just seem to be doing something almost a bit too avant-garde to ever quite get on the map despite to my mind putting out a couple of these really excellent albums and listening to it you know in preparation of this I, I think I was actually on the wrong album but this this debut Cinder as a Sung really seems like an amazingly accomplished um release moving on we have yet another actual appearance of Saxon Grindcore this time uh the ever-experimenting Napalm Death on their arm Utilitarian on the track Everyday Pox 
bring a, a saxophone into the mix. And I kind of like that trend on more recent Napalm Death albums where they'll throw one sort of like weirdo left field track into each. It, it, it's a great track. Um, I don't know if it was symbolic of anything bands would go on to do afterwards. I think this was more of a, a fun aside rather than an idea that could be taken taken long distance. Showing it's really getting into the mainstream. Uh, Purified in Blood uh, on their album Flight of a Dying Sun uh, on the track Escape to Solace. Um, they're, they're a band who plays very accessible, like metalcore meets mellow death kind of proggy stuff. And it's very enjoyable, but it, this, this from particularly from 2012, felt like an album that, that could have could have been very popular. I have no idea how well this band actually did it, slightly outside of my um my usual knowledge. But yeah, they 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 use sax to great effect in a, a kind of melodic section of one of their longer prog bits. But it's just interesting to hear at this point in yeah 2012, a decade back, it was just something that would just pop up in random songs. We were like, oh yeah, we wanna we wanna look a bit proggy, wanna look a bit cool, like throw some sax in there. Talking of which, the faceless on their third album. Um, Autothesis Movement Free Deconsecrate. Oh, that's not the album, sorry. That's the uh, that's the name of the song. The the album's called Auto Autotheism. Uh, yeah, never been a massive Faceless fan, and this this is something I, I think actually it really jumped out to me when Faceless did this, where I was like, oh, this is now this is now just the cool sort of prog thing to be doing, and I would argue it's a little ham fistedly shoved into this song but then again i don't know because i'm not a faceless fan anyway I, I don't like uh their their best work i really tried to get into plan three duality years ago and it always just left me a little cold but yeah it, it certainly shows something where even like a tech death band like that who are very flavor of the moment at that point in time would risk throwing a saxophone into the song as you know just a cool thing to be experimenting with same point in time, Thank You Scientists put out their debut album, Maps of Non-Existent Places. Thank You Scientists, I certainly wouldn't say was a metal band, but they always felt kind of adjacent to that. They always play at those kind of um, post-rocky sort of festivals, and their audience, they, everyone I know like some seems to also be into metal. But yeah, very technical, over-the-top music, but we've hooky choruses and so on and huge use of saxophone which i think i could definitely see having a bit of influence on um on kind of people around that that kind of genre so we get a few kind of um interesting ones in a row uh in vain have a guest appearance on their arm enigma on the floating on the murmuring tide which is sort of an interesting aside but certainly yeah just another sort of nod including it uh a french band called uh Penesses nocturnes on the album nom dune pipe uh have a lot of saxophone throughout the album um mixing with their sort of progressive avant-garde weirdness it's another album where I sort of like i somewhat enjoyed it but it was possibly a bit too wacky for me uh mis vasfidel on their their follow-up album sonder commander have um, some far more kind of flashy guest solos on the track Hourglass of Ash, which I thought were pretty uh, pretty standout moments. Um, worth mentioning, we have an actual album where 
Bruce Lamont is kind of a central part of the band. Uh, Correction House is kind of main band, I think, on their debut Last City Zero from October 2013. Um, this one's kind of not a million miles off a lot of those that have been that like sort of neurosity, post-rock, sludgy world, but um, with somewhat more of an oddball edge to it. There's a there's kind of saxophone scattered throughout the album, adding like constant textures, but then there's some very odd turns in certain tracks. There's a song on it where um, it goes into this sort of kind of almost Tom Waits singing over a spaghetti western section, and then others where we get into like really brutal hardcore-esque noise, and the sax appears in its own way... Um, like throughout this even like later tracks when we go into a very industrial place um kind of like um with a ballroom the sax still kind of fits in there quite nicely the only thing i think that lets down uh last city zero is the spoken word is a bit it's kind of like a bit up its own arse and not quite as i, I don't know the, the spoken word like the, the content of it really didn't gel with me well and that, that was the the one lap down but i did enjoy it a lot on first listen and corrections house are definitely onto something very interesting around this time a band i'm absolutely in love with and i'm sure you've heard me me talk about a length up here uh this is malady with their second album still from uh march 2015 if you've not heard me mention them before they're a german-based band have been going since about 2009 led by guitarist um bjorn Koppler, who masterful player but like gets in these huge lineups like this this album has like nine musicians credited on it like three guitarists a drummer three vocalists like clean vocalist like a mid-range scream and a low-range scream the mid-range scream are added by the incredible and ever busy Dea who does these brilliantly pain shrieks and then these long kind of like spoken word descending into absolute horror sections but then we get a uh, burn when us uh, like clean vocals which are hugely melodic and this like moves back and forth um the sax in melody is mainly used for dropping moments of real like kind of melodicism particularly in the um the 15 minute long epic semivifus which is like, the, the sax section is so incredibly melodic. It almost makes me laugh when it appears, but it, it fits such so well as a transition out of this angry, screaming blast beat. And this, this song is absolutely incredible. Like, the, the way it builds up and changes from these, these really aggressive blasting sections to these sort of very open, like, clean bits, often leading melodies with cool like additions on the bass guitar to this final like climax where the drums get more and more fast as all these different layers of vocals and other instruments like layer up into this ultimate crescendo and that leads smoothly into the eight minute outro the incredibly like bleak and terrifying like finisher to the album which is really led by Dea doing his kind of most menacing voice and there's like a slow build up for that sax isn't a huge part of what melody do but it's it's a brilliant texture in the tracks it appears in it's like on so many of their albums it's used to fantastic effect I, I could be wrong on this i'm pretty sure it doesn't appear on their 2012 
album Plague Within. But particularly, this feels like a band was saying about like um, After and Size later stuff having influence on bands. I would be amazed to find out Malady didn't take influence from albums like that and go like, oh, this is where we incorporate it in the metal. This is what you can do with a saxophone where it's layered over metal. So I've spoken about Malady too much on the podcast, so I don't need to go into more detail, but please, if you've never checked them out, go track out their 2015 album still. It, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. It's so, so unique and out there and just so wonderfully detailed in its composition. names clearly getting around at this point fractal universe the kind of progressive tech def band from france get him in as a guest solo on collective engram um one i realize i absolutely miss going over the researchers and i've for some reason never listened to white world's debut album futility report from may 17 features a great deal of it in that you know you now well-known white world style of fusing kind of melodic very grim depressing jazz with very grim depressing black metal no idea quite how that lines up to their love failure exchange from i believe 2019 maybe 2018 um but yeah so oh no no, no. the september 2019 love failure exchange is where uh where white ward really sort of become known for having that in the sound but yeah it's um it's interesting they're they're appearing there and there's a load actually like right in a row i think 2017 is like this point where I just noticed it appearing in everything as a guest. So there's guest saxophone in Chernobog's uh, self-titled Chernobog uh, debut on track three, non-existent warmth, which is the bit where they really move away from Doom and go on this whole like ten-minute prog odyssey. So no surprise, um, saxophone appears in there. 
One I really enjoyed it on is Couch Sluts Contempt. There's the sax in the opening of the first track in the album, Funeral Dyke, and it is just used to create an absolute hellscape on an incredibly brutal hellscape of a release. Um, me and Rob reviewed this back in like 2017 on our sort of best of the year stuff, and the, this album has stuck with me ever since. It is a truly brutal album in so many ways, and and kind of the inclusion of saxophone is something which essentially, I guess the sound would boil down to like very extreme end of hardcore, but not the kind of bouncy hardcore, more the horrible, horrible noise hardcore. Yeah, they're doing on something pretty amazing here, but probably won't talk too much more about Contempt because the sax is a very minor part of it, but I do really love it. It's such a tiny clip, but it just really shows you the album means business. Now, in totally kind of the opposite end of the scale, we have both Akakoker and Slave that year, like about a month apart, put out Renaissance and Extremis and E, both of which were very melodic albums for said bands, both in the realm of black metal, um, in the closing track of Akakoka's Renaissance and Extremis, we get um, some saxophone over the, the oddness of a particularly cold September. And in E, probably the most melodic moment of the entire album, there's a very beautiful sax solo on the track Hindsight, which is probably my particular favourite off that release. Probably not one of Enslaved's strongest albums, but I do like that song just for being so firmly in the kind of prog rock category. A band doing something a bit more kind of out there with it was uh, Dreadnought uh, with their album Awake in Sacred Waves. I think this is the second Dreadnought album, but it's the first one where they started including saxophone. And Dreadnought are one of those weird bands where it's a four-piece where all the members in the band play too many instruments, making for a, a very awkward live show. Where So the drummer is also the sax player, and I've seen live videos where he will keep a beat with his feet just using the hi-hat and the kick pedal while playing his sax sections. The, the sax in Dreadnought often reserved for um, kind of more ambient-sounding sections. Like, if you've not heard Dreadnought, they're a fantastic kind of progressive band with a mixture of like harsh vocals and cleans um a lot of like kind of i believe like flute and keyboard some amazing melodic stuff between the kind of heavier things they're a band for some reason like i lump them in that general realm of stuff like sub rosa and hammers of misfortune of bands that have taken a lot from progressive music but are playing it over kind of some sort of nastier, more metallic stuff. And Awaken Sacred Waves really is, is a very strong album from Dreadnought. I think the follow-up was really good as well, but yeah, Awaken Sacred Waves was possibly because the one introduced me to them, but they were onto such an interesting, unique sound with that that, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of really fell in love with them on that release. That same year, a supergroup appeared that seemed specifically aimed at me, Featuring Hannes Grossman on drums um, of every band ever, um, David Tiso of FL Duaf fame on guitar and bass, and Jason McMaster's um, very active guy who's 
probably primarily known in metal circles for his work with Watchtower early on. Amazing kind of falsetto vocalist. The three of them teamed up with Bruce Lamont once again to produce some really, really strange extreme metal. Um, you can tell David Tisa had a massive hand in writing this with his like very oddball weird like jazz phrasing of everything the album starts to mean to go on the opening like in it of upended shows you basically what you're gonna get with this opening with this kind of very aggressive sax playing over an intense Panos Grossman beat that then gives way to a David Tisa very jazz influenced um interesting weird guitar solo and then Jason comes in with his ridiculous falsetto trying to fit some bizarrely complex lyrics over the, this really difficult complex melody and song structure and that's more or less how the album goes on and uh, for 35 minutes it is an absolute assault on the senses but wildly original and just trying something really interesting and i i love the the look of the cover as well that kind of image of the the start white sycamore tree over the four oh, sorry six robe figures surrounding a, a slaughtered lamb and the 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 follow-up album so they've, they've done two two arms under this name um where they've sort of inverted that image with the lightning strike for the second cover second album isn't really worth covering this because i don't believe there's any sax in it maybe like one solo but bruce lamont has a huge part in this first album appearing on on a um on most of the first two tracks and like that's where they really nail down their kind of gnarly jazz credentials. And it is great to hear something like this because it felt like a very logical follow-up to Atheldewath where sort of David had gone off to work on Gospel of Witches taking a lot of the kind of more straightforward elements of Atheldewath sound. This feels like all the kind of most wacky, over-the-top most challenging elements of their sound distilled into another project and yeah just really happy to have something like this not sure how well it went down with people but um for me yeah i was i was incredibly impressed
that brings us to March 2018, where Rivers of Nile, with their second album, Where Owls Know My Name, invented putting saxophone in metal. Um, this is probably the moment many of you have been waiting for with this episode, and I am sorry to probably disappoint a lot of you. I'm just not a fan of this album. I don't hate it by any means, but it was one of those ones where I never quite got the hype. Now, that that being said, it is a very good album. Like there, there is a lot to like about uh, "Where Else Know My Name." The 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 inclusion of beautiful melodic saxophone and moments of prog rock into this sort of um, very traditional kind of you know twenty fifteen onwards tech def kind of sound. Rivers and I had going on their first album. Amazing, works really well. Uh, on this album, I absolutely love the bass playing. The bass player has incredible tone. Like witnessing him play with that live as well, mind blowing. And it, particularly when the guitar is in a more clean phase, and we get the saxophone like in the tight little track, things come together. Beautiful, absolutely amazing. But what kills this album for me, and it's an issue I have with a lot of a lot of albums, is that triggered drum sound. It is just absolutely overpowering. Like the it just dominates the album and I find particularly in the middle of the album I put the whole thing on again today in preparation for this it's just non-stop and it is so such a big part of the mix and when it's going the that beautiful bass tone is completely destroyed like it's just not audible anymore and ah uh, it's it's so frustrating but Rivers and Nile they really were onto something interesting with this for all, for all my joking about them inventing it, um, they, they were doing something very different. This sound is is a a long way away from what say Ishan or Psy were were doing. Possibly more in the vein actually of some of those sort of guest solos, like like Fractal Universe. I I think that's not a million miles away or in vain, kind of touching on a similar idea. Certainly not saying uh, Rizzo Nile took influence. I I think. And they might well have come up with this like sort of uniquely. Again, I'd be surprised if they hadn't heard after and gone like, "Oh, you can put uh, you can put saxophone over quite heavy stuff." But they 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 found their own path with that, and I can see why this album is loved. If you can handle that sort of kick drum sound and that sort of um, the, yeah the presence of the drums like that, then there's a lot of really interesting stuff on display here. This is the few things that have never like always been a barrier to entry for me particularly say tracks like uh subtle change like i find the clean vocals are just really not to my taste but truly inventive album and as someone who likes the presence of sax in metal they they, they really opened the door for a lot of bands to start trying this um you know they they sort of put down a template of here is how it can fit in sort of more complex very aggressive very um like super produced, super clean music, rather, and sort of welding in like an instrument that is so, you know, kind of natural and unaffected into that. Yeah, Riz and I were really on something very interesting with this.
Now, from this point, I think is really where it explodes outwards. You get stuff like uh, the following year, Freedom of Fear, who put out an album not entirely in a different vein from uh, Where Else Know My Name, featured a sax solo, and it felt like a very sort of natural inclusion. Obviously, a, a clear nod to uh, Riz of Nile, and probably something they, they you know wrote in in the kind of last minutes of writing that album really cool now as i mentioned before one of the last like i think final kind of like boundary crossings with um saxon metal has to come with september 2019 white ward's second album love failure exchange where they might sax such an integral powerful emotional part of um of the music like i couldn't miss covering them in some degree like the ukrainian black metal band like went from essentially their early demos being you know a normal black metal band to this beautiful dark melancholic music where sax is interwoven into every moment be it heavy or light and feels like the most natural thing in the world being there and each song it comes with such like an emotional punch to it i remember like so i was doing my kind of like best of the decade kind of list in 2019 and just from the, like, the opening track of this like i knew oh shit that, that, that the list has been blown wide open i've i've never heard this before and it's so incredibly exciting it's so it's so different and so endlessly listenable despite its kind of kind of extremity of emotions like it it just yeah it really felt like a band just finding totally new ground by including that instrument and using it in a similar way to say like Ishan on on the shores like where he's gone like I want a lonesome sounding very emotional instrument as i remember each one the interviews around after talking a lot of how he felt saxophone is a very solitary instrument it's something that works very well in isolation and so layering it over these these sort of more atmospheric riffs felt so perfect and love failure exchange feels like somebody took that one song and went like oh look at like what it's been useful there what if we build a whole album with those levels of ups and downs and use sax to create that incredible melancholy that incredible dark atmosphere throughout and yeah it's it's truly wonderful and i can't believe i didn't listen to the first album in preparation for this very sorry I let you guys down there a bit um but yeah like i if you want to hear more in depth on love failure exchange like go back to our best of 2019 episode me and rob going on this album in extreme depth but yeah it, it's still for me yeah however many years later i i still think this holds up as like an absolute masterwork for sex in the genre
I think I'll kind of bring it to a close around that point. Like, at this stage, you know, you can see Sax has permeated a huge amount of metal. Like, it was no trouble finding a list of, like, 75-odd albums for this episode where where the instruments sort of appeared. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to do this, one, to chart, like, sort of the bands who were, you know, first including it and then sort of the interesting developments with it but also to sort of make a case for why it is a diverse and variable instrument you can do a huge amount with like nothing sounds quite like saxophone it's um and i we probably haven't even got to the point of like truly plumbing the depths of where it can be melded with metal like you know no one would have seen white ward coming 10 years earlier that that kind of would have been completely out of left field. But now we're up to the point where bands like Ghost, you know, superstars that they are, like, included a saxophone on their, like, 2019 album. Um, and you, you have bands going in all sorts of interesting directions with it. Stuff like Neptulian Maximalism taking it into, like, completely weird and wonderful realms. Or um, in human form with their arm free, have a load of interesting use of saxophone. I'd say somewhat in that, like, kind of malady vein. We'll probably play the episode out with a clip of them if you want to hear more about in human form covered him in our i void hanger episode a while ago but incredible band doing really interesting stuff in the realm of like progressive black metal but including that as a texture i know i know you'll probably listen to this episode but my friend richard from the band blood rust sort of often jokingly talks about saxophone as being this sort of additional gimmick in music in metal music is like kind of a an overused trope and kind of what i was getting at here is i i it's somewhat in response to his totally not serious argument is i i don't think it's overused like there is it's such a versatile instrument so many weird and wonderful things you can do with it and there there is while there's many cases of it in metal it's hardly everyone just doing the Rivers of Nile thing. Now, of course, there's been clones and copycats in the wake of an album like that, interesting and successful. There always will be in everything, but that doesn't, like, rule out the scope to do something weird and interesting within the genre, like, um, and playing around with that sound in a different way. And, I don't know, I am rambling and struggling to come to a good kind of conclusion with this. All I'm saying is keep an open mind to other instruments, I guess. Like, you know, there will be a point in time where the idea of including an orchestra in your metal track would be totally ridiculous. But, you know, now we have the likes of Septic Flesh and Dimmy Borger making that a complete kind of obvious norm of, like, of course that, that works really well together when when the songs are constructed for it. And uh, likewise, saxophone, it, it, I think it fits very well. There's, there's plenty of examples in this where bands have just slapped a sax solo into an otherwise like generic song and it's either breathed new life for it into it or in certain cases being the only good thing about the song but um i think if it's you know something that could survive as such a staple of lead instrument of jazz there's no reason you know we couldn't involve it in the same way i mean we're at that point there you know there's a million and one guitar solos and everything definitely nice to have have a different texture every so often um all for and you know i'm all for the use of other stuff like you know more trumpets and metal more more cello more violin now the issue comes as we've seen with this you got to learn to play them <laughs> there's a reason blue slamont and jürgen monkeby have turned up so many times 
is sax is a really bloody hard instrument. You need to find people who can play it well and are ready to experiment with metal. So, you know, maybe that's the next frontier. Like, all these uh, brilliant uh, teenage guitarists, like, maybe they need to, a couple of them need to specialise in saxophone. If it's any interest to them, it does make you look pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, probably, probably leave it leave it on that. Um, uh, yeah, it's like... As I say, there's there's infinite scope I've missed in this. I would really like to hear if you've got some great examples of saxophone included in heavy music in that period. I really skipped over like 1970 to like about 83. If you've got some good examples of it being involved in really guitar-driven music, I'd love to hear them. But also any of those kind of periods like the early 2000s, like what, what bands were doing oddball weirdo stuff with it? Was there a band, like a black metal equivalent of Pamphimonium, like doing something very out there within the bounds of the genre, possibly included sax? I mean, honestly, I'd be interested even if it didn't. So yeah, as always, hit me up. Um at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook or Instagram. Get in touch and yeah, let me know what you think and yeah, let me know if this kind of like historical format sort of episode um, works for you at all. I do realise to some extent this boiled down to reading off a list that wasn't much your way around that. I'm unfortunately trying to get all that stuff in there. Possibly it needed more clips, but I didn't want to you overload the episode too much. Thanks a lot for listening. To play us out, a bit of hu in human form showing uh, the cool end you can put saxophone to in black metal. <laughs>